0: Part Three of the Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy, Chapter Seven Getting Acquainted. A cyclone entering a room is apt to alter the position of things. This cyclone shifted a footstool, a small chair, a rug, and spike. The chair, struck by a massive boot, whirled against the wall. The footstool rolled away. The rug crumpled up and slid. Spike, with a yell, leaped to his feet, slipped again, fell, and finally compromised on an all-fours position, in which attitude he remained blinking. While these stirring acts were in progress, there was the sound of a door opening upstairs, followed by a scuttering of feet and an appalling increase in the canine contribution to the current noises. The duet had now taken on quite a Wagnerian effect, There raced into the room first a white bull terrier, he of the soprano voice, and, a bad second, his fellow artiste, the baritone, a massive bulldog, bearing a striking resemblance to the big man with the big lower jaw, whose entrance had started the cyclone. And then, in theatrical parlance, the entire company held the picture. Upstage, with his hand still on the door, stood the man with the jaw. Downstage, Jimmy. Center, Spike, and the Bulldog, their noses a couple of inches apart, inspected each other with mutual disfavor. On the extreme O.P. side, the Bull Terrier, who had fallen foul of a wickerwork table, was crouching with extended tongue and rolling eyes, waiting for the next move. The householder looked at Jimmy. Jimmy looked at the householder. Spike and the Bulldog looked at each other. The bull-terrier distributed his gaze impartially around the company. "'A typical scene of quiet American home life,' murmured Jimmy. The householder glowered. "'Hands up, you devils!' he roared, pointing a mammoth revolver. The two marauders humored his whim. "'Let me explain.' said Jimmy pacifically, shuffling warily around in order to face the Bull Terrier, who was now strolling in his direction with an ill-assumed carelessness. "'Keep still, you blackguard!' Jimmy kept still. The Bull Terrier, with the same abstracted air, was beginning a casual inspection of his right trouser leg. Relations between Spike and the Bulldog, meanwhile, had become more strained. The sudden flinging up of the former's arms had had the worst effects on the animal's nerves. Spike, the croucher on all fours, he might have tolerated. But Spike, the semaphore, inspired him with thoughts of battle. He was growling in a moody, reflective manner. His eye was full of purpose. It was probably this that caused Spike to look at the householder. Till then he had been too busy to shift his gaze but now the bulldog's eye had become so unpleasing that he cast a pathetic glance up at the man by the door. "'Gee!' he cried. "'It's de boss! Say, boss, call off de dog! It's sure goin' to nip de hull head off on me!' The other lowered the revolver in surprise. "'So, it's you, you limb of Satan!' he remarked. "'I thought I had seen that damned red head of yours before. What are you doing in my house?' Spike uttered a howl, in which indignation and self-pity were nicely blended. "'I'll lay for that Swede,' he cried. "'I'll soak it to him good. "'Boss, I've had a raw deal. "'On the level I has. "'There's a feller I know, a fat Swede, "'old Larson his moniker is, "'and this feller in me started a scrappin' last week, "'and I puts it all over him, so he had it in for me.' But he comes up to me like as if he's meanin' to be good, and he says he's got a soft proposition for me, if I'll give him half. So I says, all right, where is it? And he gives me the number of this house, and says this is where a widder lady lives all alone, and has got silver mugs and things to boin, and that she's away down south, so there ain't nobody in the house. Gee, I'll soak it to that Swede. It was a raw deal, boss. He was just hopin' to put me in bed with you. That's how it was, boss. Honest." The big man listened to this sad story of Grecian gifts in silence. Not so the bulldog, which growled from start to finish. Spike eyed it uneasily. "'Won't you call off the dog, boss?' he said. The other stooped and grasped the animal's collar, jerking him away. "'The same treatment,' suggested Jimmy, with approval, would also do a world of good to this playful and affectionate animal, unless he is a vegetarian, in which case don't bother." The big man glowered at him. "'Who are you?' he demanded. "'My name,' began Jimmy, "'is—' "'Say,' said Spike, "'he's a champion burglar, boss.' The householder shut the door. "'Eh?' he said. "'He's a champion burglar from the other side. He sure is. From London. Gee, he's de guy. Tell him about de bank you opened and to jewels you swipe from the duchess, and at what you call it, blowpipe. It seemed to Jimmy that Spike was showing a certain want of tact. When you are discovered by a householder, with revolver, in his parlor at half-past three in the morning, it is surely an injudicious move to lay stress on your proficiency as a burglar. The householder may be supposed to take that for granted. The side of your character that should be advertised in such a crisis is the non-burglarious." Allusion should be made to the fact that, as a child, you attended Sunday school regularly, and to what the minister said when you took the divinity prize. The idea should be conveyed to the householder's mind that, if led off with a caution, your innate goodness of heart will lead you to reform and to avoid such scenes in the future. With some astonishment, therefore, Jimmy found that these revelations, so far from prejudicing the man with the revolver against him,— had apparently told in his favor. The man behind the gun was regarding him rather with interest than disapproval. So, you're a crook from London, are you? Jimmy did not hesitate. If being a crook from London was a passport into citizens' parlors in the small hours, and more particularly if it carried with it also a safe conduct out of them, Jimmy was not the man to refuse the role. He bowed. Well, You'll have to come across now you're in New York. Understand that. And come across good. Sure he will," said Spike, charmed that the tension had been relieved and matters placed upon a pleasant and business-like footing. He'll be good. He's next to the game, sure. Sure, echoed Jimmy courteously. He did not understand. But things seemed to be taking a turn for the better, so why disturb the harmony? Disgent— said Spike respectfully. "'Is boss of the cops—a police-captain,' he corrected himself. A light broke upon Jimmy's darkness. He wondered he had not understood before. He had not been a newspaper-man in New York for a year without finding out something of the inner workings of the police force. He saw now why the other's manner had changed. "'Pleased to meet you,' he said. "'Must have a talk together one of these days.' "'We must!' said the police captain, significantly. He was rich, richer than he had ever hoped to be, but he was still on Tom Tiddler's ground and meant to make the most of it. Of course, I don't know your methods on this side, but anything that's usual. I'll see you at my office. Spike Mullins will show you where it is. Very well. You must forgive this preliminary informal call. We came in more to shelter from the rain than anything. You did, did you?" Jimmy felt that it behooved him to stand on his dignity. The situation demanded it. "'Why,' he said with some hauteur, "'in the ordinary course of business, I should hardly waste time over a small crib like—' "'It's Banks for his,' murmured Spike, rapturously. "'He eats them alive—and jewels from duchesses.' "'I admit a partiality for jewels and duchesses,' said Jimmy. "'And now, as it's a little late, perhaps we had better—' "'Ready, Spike? Good night, then. Pleased to have met you.' "'I'll see you at my office.' "'I may possibly look in. I shall be doing very little work in New York, I fancy. I am here merely on vacation.' "'If you do any work at all,' said the policeman coldly, "'you'll look in at my office.' Or you'll wish you had when it's too late. Of course, of course, I shouldn't dream of omitting any formality that may be usual. But I don't fancy I shall break my vacation. By the way, one little thing. Have you any objections to my carving a jay on your front door? The policeman stared. On the inside. It won't show. It's just a whim of mine, if you have no objection. I don't want any of your began the policeman. "'You misunderstand me. It's only that it means paying for a dinner. I wouldn't for the world—' The policeman pointed to the window. "'Out you get,' he said abruptly. "'I've had enough of you. And don't you forget to come to my office.' Spike, still deeply mistrustful of the bulldog Rastus, jumped at the invitation. He was through the window and out of sight in the friendly darkness almost before the policeman had finished speaking. Jimmy remained. I shall be delighted," he had begun. Then he stopped. In the doorway was standing a girl, a girl whom he recognized. Her startled look told him that she, too, had recognized him. Not for the first time since he had set out from his flat that night in Spike's company, Jimmy was conscious of a sense of the unreality of things. It was all so exactly as it would have happened in a dream. He had gone to sleep thinking of this girl, and here she was but a glance at the man with the revolver brought him back to earth. There was nothing of the dream world about the police captain. That gentleman, whose back was toward the door, had not observed the addition to the company. Molly had turned the handle quietly, and her slippered feet made no sound. It was the amazed expression on Jimmy's face that caused the captain to look toward the door. "'Molly!' the girl smiled, though her face was white. Jimmy's evening-clothes had reassured her. She did not understand how he came to be there, but evidently there was nothing wrong. She had interrupted a conversation, not a conflict. "'I heard the noise, and you going downstairs, and I sent the dogs down to help you, father,' she said. And then, after a little, I came down to see if you were all right.' Mr. McKeckern was perplexed. Molly's arrival had put him in an awkward position. To denounce the visitor as a cracksman was now impossible, for he knew too much. The only real fear of the policeman's life was lest some word of his money-making methods might come to his daughter's ears. Quite a brilliant idea came to him. "'A man broke in, my dear,' he said. "'This gentleman was passing and saw him.' "'Distinctly,' said Jimmy. "'An ugly-looking customer.' "'But he slipped out of the window and got away,' concluded the policeman. "'He was very quick,' said Jimmy. "'I think he may have been a professional acrobat.' "'He didn't hurt you, father.' "'No, no, my dear.' "'Perhaps I frightened him,' said Jimmy airily. Mr. MacAeckern scowled furtively at him. "'We mustn't detain you, Mr.' "'Pitt,' said Jimmy. "'My name is Pitt.' He turned to Molly. I hope you enjoyed the voyage." The policeman started. "'You know my daughter?' "'By sight only, I'm afraid. We were fellow-passengers on the Lusitania. Unfortunately, I was in the second cabin. I used to see your daughter walking the deck sometimes.' Molly smiled. "'I remember seeing you, sometimes.' McKeckern burst out. "'Then you—' He stopped and looked at Molly. The girl was bending over Rastus, tickling him under the ear. "'Let me show you the way out, Mr. Pitt,' said the policeman, shortly. His manner was abrupt, but when one is speaking to a man whom one would dearly love to throw out of the window, abruptness is almost unavoidable. "'Perhaps I should be going,' said Jimmy. "'Good-night, Mr. Pitt,' said Molly. "'I hope we shall meet again,' said Jimmy. "'This way, Mr. Pitt!' growled McHeckern, holding the door. "'Please don't trouble,' said Jimmy. He went to the window, and, flinging his leg over the sill, dropped noiselessly to the ground. He turned and put his head in at the window again. "'I did that rather well,' he said pleasantly. "'I think I must take up this—sort of thing as a profession. Good night.' CHAPTER Eight, AT Drever. In the days before he began to expend his surplus energy in playing rugby football, the Welshman was accustomed, whenever the monotony of his everyday life began to oppress him, to collect a few friends and make raids across the border into England, to the huge discomfort of the dwellers on the other side. It was to cope with this habit that Drever Castle, in the county of Shropshire, came into existence. It had met a long-felt want. In time of trouble it became a haven of refuge. From all sides people poured into it, emerging cautiously when the marauders had disappeared. In the whole history of the castle there is but one instance recorded of a bandit attempting to take the place by storm, and the attack was an emphatic failure. On receipt of a ladleful of molten lead, aimed to a nicety by one john the chaplain, evidently one of those sporting parsons, This warrior retired, done to a turn, to his mountain fastnesses, and was never heard of again. He would seem, however, to have passed the word around among his friends, for subsequent raiding parties studiously avoided the castle, and a peasant who had succeeded in crossing its threshold was for the future considered to be home and out of the game. Such was the dreaver of old. In later days, the Welshman having calmed down considerably, it had lost its militant character. The old walls still stood, gray, menacing, and unchanged, but they were the only link with the past. The castle was now a very comfortable country-house, nominally ruled over by Hildebrand Spencer Pointerberg John Hanneside Crumby, Twelfth Earl of Drever, Spenny to his relatives and intimates a light-haired young gentleman of twenty-four but in reality the possession of his uncle and aunt sir thomas and lady julia blunt lord Dreaver's position was one of some embarrassment at no point in their history had the Dreavers been what might call a parsimonious family if a chance presented itself of losing money in a particularly wild and futile manner, the drever of the period had invariably sprung at it with the vim of an energetic bloodhound. The South Sea bubble absorbed two hundred thousand pounds of good drever money, and the remainder of the family fortune was squandered to the ultimate penny by the sportive gentleman who held the title in the days of the Regency, when Wattiers and the cocoa-tree were in their prime and fortunes had a habit of disappearing in a single evening. When Spenny became Earl of Drever, there was about one dollar and thirty cents in the family coffers. This is the point at which Sir Thomas Blunt breaks into Drever history. Sir Thomas was a small, pink, fussy, obstinate man, with a genius for trade, and the ambition of an Alexander the Great probably one of the finest and most complete specimens of the came-over-Waterloo-bridge-with-half-a-crown-in-my-pocket-and-now-look-at-me-class-of-millionaires-in-existence. He had started almost literally with nothing. By carefully excluding from his mind every thought except that of making money, he had risen in the world with a gruesome persistence which nothing could check. At the age of fifty-one, he was chairman of Blunt Stores, Limited, a member of Parliament— silent as a wax figure, but a great comfort to the party by virtue of liberal contributions to its funds, and a knight. This was good, but he aimed still higher, and meeting Spenny's aunt, Lady Julia Combe Crumbie, just at the moment when, financially, the Drevers were at their lowest ebb, he had effected a very satisfactory deal by marrying her, thereby becoming, as one might say, Chairman of Drever Limited. Until Spenny should marry money, an act on which his chairman vehemently insisted, Sir Thomas held the purse, and except, in minor matters ordered by his wife, of whom he stood in uneasy awe, had things entirely his own way. One afternoon, a little over a year after the events recorded in the preceding chapter, Sir Thomas was in his private room, looking out of the window, from which the view was very beautiful. The castle stood on a hill the lower portion of which, between the house and the lake, had been cut into broad terraces. The lake itself, and its island, with the little boathouse in the centre, gave a glimpse of fairyland. But it was not altogether the beauty of the view that had drawn Sir Thomas to the window. He was looking at it chiefly because the position enabled him to avoid his wife's eye, and just at the moment he was rather anxious to avoid his wife's eye. A somewhat stormy board-meeting was in progress, and Lady Julia, who constituted the Board of Directors, had been heckling the chairman. The point under discussion was one of etiquette, and in matters of etiquette, Sir Thomas felt himself at a disadvantage. "'I tell you, my dear,' he said to the window, "'I am not easy in my mind—' "'Nonsense!' snapped Lady Julia. "'Absurd! Ridiculous!' Lady Julia Blunt, when conversing, resembled a maxim-gun more than anything else. "'But your diamonds, my dear. "'We can take care of them.' "'But why should we have the trouble? "'Now, if we—' "'It's no trouble. "'When we married, there was a detective—' "'Don't be childish, Thomas. "'Detectives at weddings are quite customary.' "'But—' "'Bah!' "'I paid twenty thousand pounds for that rope of diamonds,' "'said Sir Thomas obstinately.' Switch things upon a cash basis, and he was more at ease. "'May I ask if you suspect any of our guests of being criminals?' inquired Lady Julia, with a glance of chill disdain. Sir Thomas looked out of the window. At the moment, the sternest censor could have found nothing to cavil at in the movements of such of the house-party as were in sight. Some were playing tennis, some clock-golf, and others were smoking. "'Why, no,' he admitted. "'Of course. Absurd, quite absurd. "'But the servants—we have engaged a number of new servants lately. "'With excellent recommendations.' Sir Thomas was on the point of suggesting that the recommendations might be forged, but his courage failed him. Julia was sometimes so abrupt in these little discussions. She did not enter into his point of view— he was always a trifle inclined to treat the castle as a branch of Blunt stores. As proprietor of the stores, he had made a point of suspecting everybody, and the results had been excellent. In Blunt stores, you could hardly move in any direction without bumping into a gentlemanly detective, effectively disguised. For the life of him, Sir Thomas could not see why the same principle should not obtain at drever guests at a country house do not as a rule steal their host's possessions, but then it is only an occasional customer at a store who goes in for shoplifting. It was the principle of the thing, he thought. Be prepared against every emergency. With Sir Thomas Blunt, suspiciousness was almost a mania. He was forced to admit that the chances were against any of his guests exhibiting larcenous tendencies, but, as for the servants, He thoroughly mistrusted them all, except Saunders, the butler. It had seemed to him the merest prudence that a detective from a private inquiry agency should be installed at the castle while the house was full. Somewhat rashly, he had mentioned this to his wife, and Lady Julia's critique of the scheme had been terse and unflattering. "'I suppose,' said Lady Julia, sarcastically, "'You will jump to the conclusion "'that this man whom Spenny is bringing down with him to-day "'is a criminal of some sort?' "'Eh? Is Spenny bringing a friend?' There was not a great deal of enthusiasm in Sir Thomas's voice. His nephew was not a young man whom he respected very highly. Spenny regarded his uncle with nervous apprehension, as one who would deal with his shortcomings with vigor and severity. Sir Thomas, for his part, looked on Spenny as a youth who would get into mischief unless under his uncle's eye. "'I had a telegram from him just now,' Lady Julia explained. "'Who is his friend?' "'He doesn't say. He just says he's a man he met in London.' Hm. "'And what does, hm mean?' demanded Lady Julia. "'A man can pick up strange people in London,' said Sir Thomas, judicially. "'Nonsense!' "'Just as you say, my dear,' Lady Julia rose. "'As for what you suggest about the detective, it is, of course, absolutely absurd.' "'Quite so, my dear.' "'You mustn't think of it.' "'Just as you say, my dear.' Lady Julia left the room. What followed may afford some slight clue to the secret of Sir Thomas Blunt's rise in the world. It certainly suggests singleness of purpose, which is one of the essentials of success. No sooner had the door closed behind Lady Julia than he went to his writing-table, took pen and paper, and wrote the following letter. To the manager, Rags Detective Agency, Holborn Bars, London, E.C. Sir, with reference to my last of the 28th, Alt, I should be glad if you would send down immediately one of your best men. Am making arrangements to receive him kindly instruct him to present himself at Dreva Castle, as applicant for position of valet to myself. I will see and engage him on his arrival, and further instruct him in his duties. Yours faithfully, Thomas Blunt. P.S. I shall expect him to-morrow evening. There is a good train leaving Paddington at 2.15. Sir Thomas read this over, put in a comma, then placed it in an envelope, and lighted a cigar with the air of one who can be checked, yes, but vanquished never. CHAPTER Nine, FRIENDS, NEW AND OLD On the night of the day on which Sir Thomas Blunt wrote and dispatched his letter to Rag's detective agency, Jimmy Pitt chanced to stop at the Savoy. If you have the money and the clothes, and do not object to being turned out into the night just as you are beginning to enjoy yourself, there are few things pleasanter than supper at the Savoy Hotel, London. But as Jimmy sat there, eyeing the multitude through the smoke of his cigarette, he felt, despite all the brightness and glitter, that this was a flat world, that he was very much alone in it. A little over a year had passed since the merry evening at Police Captain McEachern's. During that time he had covered a good deal of new ground. His restlessness had asserted itself. Somebody had mentioned Morocco in his hearing, and a fortnight later he was in Fez. Of the principals in that night's drama, he had seen nothing more. It was only when, after walking home on air, rejoicing over the strange chance that had led to his finding and having speech with the Lady of the Lusitania, he had reached Fifty-ninth Street, that he realized how he had also lost her. It suddenly came home to him that not only had he not known her address, but he was ignorant of her name. Spike had called the man with the revolver Boss throughout, only that and nothing more. Except that he was a police captain, Jimmy knew as little about the man as he had before their meeting. And Spike, who held the key to the mystery, had vanished. His acquaintances of that night had passed out of his life like figures in a waking dream. As far as the big man with the pistol was concerned, this did not distress him. He had known that massive person only for about a quarter of an hour, but to his thinking that was ample. Spike he would have liked to meet again, but he bore the separation with much fortitude. There remained the girl of the ship, and she had haunted him with unfailing persistence during every one of the three hundred and eighty-four days that had passed since their meeting. It was the thought of her that had made New York seem cramped. For weeks Jimmy had patrolled the likely streets, the park and Riverside Drive, in the hope of meeting her. He had gone to the theaters and restaurants, but with no success. Sometimes he had wandered through the Bowery, on the chance of meeting Spike. He had seen redheads in profusion, but never again that of his young disciple in the art of burglary. In the end, he had wearied of the other friends of the strollers, had gone out again on his wanderings. He was greatly missed, especially by that large section of his circle, which was in perpetual state of wanting a little to see it through till Saturday. For years Jimmy had been to these unfortunates a human bank on which they could draw at will it offended them that one of those rare natures which are always good for two dollars at any hour of the day should be allowed to waste itself on places like Morocco and Spain—especially Morocco, where by all accounts there were brigands with almost a New York sense of touch. They argued earnestly with Jimmy. They spoke of Rizuli and Cade McLean, But Jimmy was not to be stopped. The gadfly was vexing him, and he had to move. For a year he had wandered, realizing every day the truth of Horace's philosophy for those who travel, that a man cannot change his feelings with this climate, until finally he had found himself, as every wanderer does, at Charing Cross. At this point he had tried to rally. Such running away, he told himself, was futile. He would stand still and fight the fever in him. He had been fighting it now for a matter of two weeks, and already he was contemplating retreat. A man at luncheon had been talking about Japan. Watching the crowd, Jimmy had found his attention attracted chiefly by a party of three, a few tables away. The party consisted of a girl, rather pretty, a lady of middle age and stately demeanour, plainly her mother, and a light-haired, weedy young man in the twenties. It had been the almost incessant prattle of this youth, and the peculiarly high-pitched, gurgling laugh which shot from him at short intervals that had drawn Jimmy's notice upon them. And it was the curious cessation of both prattle and laugh that now made him look again in their direction. The young man faced Jimmy, and Jimmy, looking at him, could see that all was not well with him. He was pale. He talked at random. A slight perspiration was noticeable on his forehead. Jimmy caught his eye. There was a hunted look in it. Given the time and the place, there were only two things that could have caused this look. Either the light-haired man had seen a ghost, or he had suddenly realized that he had not enough money to pay the check. Jimmy's heart went out to the sufferer. He took a card from his case, scribbled the words, "'Can I help?' on it, and gave it to a waiter to take to the young man, who was now in a state bordering on collapse. The next moment the light-haired one was at his table, talking in a feverish whisper. "'I say,' he said, "'it's frightfully good of you, old chap. It's frightfully awkward. I've come out with too little money. I hardly like to—' You've never seen me before.' "'Don't rub in my misfortunes,' pleaded Jimmy. "'It wasn't my fault.' He placed a five-pound note on the table. "'Say when,' he said, producing another. "'I say, thanks fearfully,' the young man said. "'I don't know what I'd have done.' He grabbed at the note. "'I'll let you have it back to-morrow. Here's my card. Is your address on your card? I can't remember. Oh, by Jove, I've got it in my hand all the time.' The gurgling laugh came into action again, freshened and strengthened by its rest. "'Savoy mansions, eh? I'll come round tomorrow. Thanks frightfully again, old chap. I don't know what I should have done.' "'It's been a treat,' said Jimmy, deprecatingly. The young man flitted back to his table, bearing the spoil. Jimmy looked at the card he had left. "'Lord Drever,' it read, and in the corner, the name of a well-known club.' The name Dreaver was familiar to Jimmy. Everyone knew of Dreaver Castle, partly because it was one of the oldest houses in England, but principally because for centuries it had been advertised by a particularly gruesome ghost story. Everyone had heard of the secret of Drever, which was known only to the Earl and the family lawyer, and confided to the heir at midnight on his twenty-first birthday. Jimmy had come across the story in corners of the papers all over the States, from New York to One Horseville, Iowa. He looked with interest at the light-haired young man, the latest depository of the awful secret. It was popularly supposed that the heir, after hearing it, never smiled again, but it did not seem to have affected the present Lord Dreaver to any great extent. His gurgling laugh was drowning the orchestra. Probably, Jimmy thought, when the family lawyer had told the light-haired young man the secret, the latter's comment had been, "'No, really, by Jove, I say you know!' Jimmy paid his bill and got up to go. It was a perfect summer night, too perfect for bed. Jimmy strolled on to the embankment and stood leaning over the balustrade, looking across the river at the vague, mysterious mass of buildings on the Surrey side. He must have been standing there for some time, his thoughts far away, when a voice spoke at his elbow. "'I say, excuse me, have you—hello?' It was the light-haired lordship of Drever. "'I say, by Jove, why, we're always meeting!' A tramp on a bench close by stirred uneasily in his sleep as the gurgling laugh rippled the air. "'Have you been looking at the water?' inquired Lord Drever. "'I have. I often do.' Don't you think it sort of makes a chap feel—no, you know, sort of—I don't know how to put it." "'Mushy,' said Jimmy. "'I was going to say poetical. Suppose there's a girl—' He paused and looked down at the water. Jimmy was sympathetic with this mood of contemplation, for in his case, too, there was a girl. "'I saw my party off in a taxi,' continued Lord Drever and came down here for a smoke, only I hadn't a match—have you?" Jimmy handed over his matchbox. Lord Dreaver lighted a cigar and fixed his gaze once more on the river. "'Ripping, it looks,' he said. Jimmy nodded. "'Funny thing,' said Lord Drever. In the daytime the water here looks all muddy and beastly—damn depressing, I call it—but at night—' He paused. "'I say,' he went on, after a moment, "'did you see the girl I was with at the Savoy?' "'Yes,' said Jimmy. "'She's a ripper,' said Lord Drever, devoutly. "'On the Thames embankment, in the small hours of a summer morning, there is no such thing as a stranger. The man you talk with is a friend, and, if he will listen, as the etiquette of the place he must, you may pour out your heart to him without restraint.' It is expected of you." "'I'm fearfully in love with her,' said his lordship. "'She looked a charming girl,' said Jimmy." They examined the water in silence. From somewhere out in the night came the sound of oars, as the police-boat moved on its patrol. "'Does she make you want to go to Japan?' asked Jimmy, suddenly. "'Eh?' said Lord Dreaver, startled. Japan!" Jimmy adroitly abandoned the position of confidant and seized that of confider. "'I met a girl a year ago. Only really met her once, and even then—oh, well. Anyway, it's made me so restless that I haven't been able to stay in one place for more than a month on end. I tried Morocco, and had to quit. I tried Spain, and that wasn't any good either. The other day I heard a fellow say that Japan was a pretty interesting sort of country. I was wondering whether I wouldn't give it a trial." Lord Dreaver regarded this traveled man with interest. "'It beats me,' he said, wonderingly. "'What do you want to leg it about the world like that for? What's the trouble? Why don't you stay where the girl is?' "'I don't know where she is.' "'Don't know?' She disappeared. Where did you see her lost? Asked his lordship, as if Molly were a mislaid penknife. New York. but how do you mean disappeared? Don't you know her address? I don't even know her name, but dash it all, I say, I mean, have you ever spoken to her? Only once. It was rather a complicated story at any rate, she's gone. Lord Drever said that it was a rum business. Jimmy conceded the point. "'It seems to me,' said his lordship, "'we're both in the cart.' "'What's your trouble?' Lord Drever hesitated. "'Oh, well, it's only that I want to marry one girl, and my uncle's dead set on my marrying another.' "'Are you afraid of hurting your uncle's feelings?' It's not so much as hurting his feelings. It's. Oh, well, it's too long to tell now. I think I'll be getting home. I'm staying at our place in Eaton Square. How are you going? If you'll walk, I'll come some of the way with you. Right you are. Let's be pushing along, shall we? They turned up into the Strand and through Trafalgar Square into Piccadilly. Piccadilly has a restful aspect in the small hours. Some men were cleaning the road with water from a long hose. The swishing of the torrent on the parched wood was musical. Just beyond the gate of Hyde Park, to the right of the road, stands a cabman's shelter. Conversation and emotion had made Lord Dreaver thirsty. He suggested coffee as a suitable conclusion to the night's revels. "'I often go in here when I'm up in town,' he said. "'The cabbies don't mind. They're sportsmen.' The shelter was nearly full when they opened the door. It was very warm inside. A cabin gets so much fresh air in the exercise of his professional duties that he is apt to avoid it in private life. The air was heavy with conflicting scents. Fried onions seemed to be having the best of the struggle for the moment, though plugged tobacco competed gallantly. A keenly analytical nose might also have detected the presence of steak and coffee. A dispute seemed to be in progress as they entered. "'You don't wish you was in Russia?' said a voice. "Yes, I do wish I was in Russia,' retorted a shriveled mummy of a cabman, who was blowing patiently at a saucerful of coffee. "'Why do you wish you was in Russia?' asked the interlocutor, introducing a Massa Bones and Massa Johnson touch into the dialogue. "'Because you can wade over your knees in blood there,' said the mummy. "'In what? "'In blood, ruddy blood. "'That's why I wish I was in Russia.' "'Cherry Cove, that,' said Lord Reaver. "'I say, can you give us some coffee?' "'I might try Russia instead of Japan,' said Jimmy, meditatively. The lethal liquid was brought. Conversation began again. Other experts gave their views on the internal affairs of Russia. Jimmy would have enjoyed it more if he had been less sleepy. His back was wedged comfortably against the wall of the shelter, and the heat of the room stole into his brain. The voices of the disputants grew fainter and fainter. He had almost dozed off when a new voice cut through the murmur and woke him. It was a voice he knew, and the accent was a familiar accent. "'Gents, excuse me!' He looked up. The mists of sleep shredded away. A ragged youth, with a crop of fiery red hair, was standing in the doorway, regarding the occupants of the shelter with a grin, half whimsical, half defiant. Jimmy recognized him. It was Spike Mullins. "'Excuse me,' said Spike Mullins. "'Is there any gent in this bunch of professional buttes wants to give a poor orphan that suffers from a painful toist something to drink?' Gents is courteously requested not to speak all in a crowd. Shut that blanky door,' said the mummy-cabman, sourly. "'And op it,' added his late opponent. "'We don't want none of your sort here.' "'Then you ain't my long-lost brothers after all,' said the newcomer, regretfully. "'I thought yous didn't look handsome enough for that. Good night to yous gents. Shut that door, can't you, when I'm telling yer said the mummy, with increased asperity. Spike was reluctantly withdrawing, when Jimmy rose. "'One moment,' he said. Never in his life had Jimmy failed to stand by a friend in need. Spike was not, perhaps, exactly a friend, but even an acquaintance could rely on Jimmy when down in the world. And Spike was manifestly in that condition. A look of surprise came into the Bowery boy's face, followed by one of stolid woodenness. He took the sovereign that Jimmy held out to him with a muttered word of thanks, and shuffled out of the room. Can't see what you wanted to give him anything for,' said Lord Drever. "'Chap'll only spend it getting soused.' "'Oh, he reminded me of a man I used to know.' "'Did he? Barnum's... what is it, I should think?' said his lordship. "'Shall we be moving?' End of part three.